look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm uh, good. Terrific. Feeling better? You know, I've still. I'm, it's this one's been hanging on. It's been over a week with me now. I, yeah. So you you went through a bit of a change <clears throat> with your diet. Mm-hmm. Any any uh, relationship between the change in your diet and no. you looking as crappy as you do right now? Hey, I've been shedding pounds, man. It's coming off. You've this been is shedding good. something already. Right. This yeah. is good, yeah. But okay. no, that flu uh, that it got me. It got me twice actually, and I'm still congested. You can probably hear it in my voice. <laughs> so and, and so you <clears throat> might need a doctor. And speaking of doctors. Mm. Dr. George is going to be on the show today. Yeah. So you're going to join us to talk about the health risks and the benefits of marijuana. I did a segment last week. Man, we had a lot of emails and questions about that. That's, I think that's the number one topic where I, where I received emails and I wasn't even at the show. Yeah. Right? So. You're going, what did he say last week? I, if you're an art collector and we, you know, there's lots of people in Calgary that are art collectors to varying degrees, right? And you, or you'd like to start. Um, don't miss our segment with the president of the Art Dealers Association of Canada on how to choose specific pieces, invest in art and protect and pass down that piece of art to uh, to your le- in, in your legacy. And did you know Canada has some great destinations out there and we we hear about them and we're going to hear about them again on the top 10 nature hotel experiences our country has to offer. We're going to have that on the show as well too. All right, man. So uh, we had the May 25th Vienna meeting. OPEC, non-OPEC, decided to extend the cuts to March uh, of 2018. That was expected, but there was a whisper behind the scenes. What was your wh- What did you hear as the whisper? The whisper. The whisper was that they were going to go deeper. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. They didn't say that. Uh, there was no indication there was of that. A whisper. But I, I the market you. whisper was we expected more. Yeah. This was a safe bet. This was, uh, and I use the analogy of what the European Union did uh, when the financial crises happened, and they said we're going to do everything we can to stop our our union right. going into a recession. Right. And they started pumping money, and then they extended that pumping of money, and they extended it again. And this is exactly what uh, the OPEC is doing. They made cuts, and they made they made a cut um, in January. They they're going to extend it for another nine more months. And then probably another three months after that. Well, they've made no commitments on that. Let's not get ahead yeah, of ourselves yeah, they'll here. They'll probably do that. That's my, that's my guess. And now here's what was interesting. Oil fell. 5% and, that day. Yeah. People were wondering why. And I had that on, on, when I was on, on TV and radio. I, I, people were saying, why? Why, why, why would we see this price drop, oil, oil output cuts? There's things that people don't realize sometimes when it comes to the price of oil. Part of it is speculation. But let's talk about pure fundamentals and what's happening with oil. Number one, we have an issue of supply. Too much. More importantly, we have an issue of demand. Not enough. Until the economy grows at a faster pace, you're not going to be able to use up all the oil that we have. The next part about this is that the shale, uh, shale part in the U.S. has been drilling like crazy. Yeah, well, they're coming back. There's a 120% increase in the number of rigs at work this month versus the same period last year. And, and people think that's what's, what's driving the price of oil. I'll tell you what's driving the price of oil. It's Silicon Valley. It is the technology that is being brought into fracking. 
and into other sources, even up in, in the north, in, in Alberta, the new technology is allowing the cost per barrel to go down, which means profitability can go up for these energy companies regardless of price. Well, then production can go up. And that means production will continue <clears throat> until we start seeing a, a, a nice clean viewpoint on supply versus demand, which isn't there yet. There's a concern. The next one is alternative to, to energy of, of, in oil. So we're seeing more solar, electric uh, vehicles, as well as um, buildings and so forth. Alternative energy is a way that's going to actually be an implication to the price of oil. So this is not just cut and therefore everything should go up. That's too temporary in my view. We're going to have a shift, a, a, a complete shift in how oil is going to be used, which impacts us here in this province because a lot of our budget, a lot of our programs, a lot of our services from the federal, provincial, and municipal governments are all based on how this economy grows and the royalties we receive from oil. Yeah, uh, you make a really good point because technology. we talk about technology often um, as the great disruptor. And it's it's disrupting in every industry, right? So think about what, what Faisal's just said, right? Not just disrupting on the supply side, i.e. technology to lower the cost of production and increase the speed at which, or even access the shale, right? Which we couldn't do not too long ago. Yeah. So accessing new supply. But also on the demand side, right? Well, if Elon Musk has his way, right? Everybody's driving an electric car. Correct. Now, how we produce the electricity, that's a whole different question. We, you know, we'll explore that on a different show. But the fact of the matter is, the uh, technology is the great disruptor, and it is having an impact uh, in an area that is critically important to our city and our province, which is oil. Yeah, and so when people are looking at their transitioning to or living in retirement, they need to understand that you can't base, A, your portfolio primarily in energy stocks or and just in energy. You need to diversify. The second part of it is your viewpoint of your income and your career may change, mm -hmm. especially if you're in the patch, right. especially if you're in the oil industry. And there's a big change happening. If Silicon Valley is getting involved, we have heard fracking. We are now hearing technology fracking 2.0, mm -hmm. fracking 3.0. That, that's all technology terms. 2.0, 3.0 are all technology terms. There's a change happening here, and those have been accustomed to the type of income, um, lifestyle. It may change. So be prepared in your retirement or for retirement that may be chosen upon you versus you choosing to, to retire. So that's one of the pieces. Mm -hmm. The next thing that came out, which really got me going on, on Friday, was um, Bill Monroe. He came out, our finance minister, came out and said... Monroe. Thank you. And, and came out and said, um, we ha there's tax loopholes in this country that we need to fix. And he gave the analogy of this. He said, there's two neighbors. Both of them are earning $220,000 per year. One neighbor is paying $80,000 in taxes. The other neighbor, because they have a small company, a private uh, co corporation is able to split income between their spouse and their adult children, and they end up paying $30,000 less in taxes. And he said, that's not fair. And that got me concerned and upset mm -hmm. because what was not mentioned was how much risk is this business owner taking personally for their family, the livelihood that's on the, on the, on the realm of uh, that could actually hurt a family, which would be then the dependency on the government to support them. And, and for that, the $50,000 or $30,000 in savings in taxes that they got, 
what risk do these guys have to take to get there? And not just that, Faisal, but add to it, if it's a company that has employees, right, they're creating jobs, those people are paying taxes, so there's, there's a follow-through on this. So right? when a person thinks that, oh, so let's take you for an example. If you're a business owner, Dave, yeah. and you risk your capital, you're risking your family's capital. Not right. just yours. Right. When you're risking, you know, people take lines of credits on their homes to start businesses. That's your family. Just because your family got income from that, that business, and it was tax preferential, meaning you, your family would pay less tax than your neighbor who earned a regular salary, that means everybody was risking that home. The salary owner wasn't. And there's, that's, that's a concern that I have because I think when times like this, when we're looking for more revenue to meet the, the spending requirements that we have, we forget how did we get to the spot. And we got to the spot where we are so fortunate in this country on the backs of business owners, on the backs of hardworking people in Canada that have built this nation. And that's a concern that I have, that if we keep on just focusing on, on groups like business owners who've, who've built this country then we've got we've got a problem here. This is a, a a shift that we have to change and we have to bring a voice to. And Bill knows this. He built a company, right? Or so, two, or, or three. two. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, our, our our view on this, I think, would be uh, would be very similar. Um, anyways, we've got to leave it there. We can rant and rave about that. Let's do that on Monday, June 19th. Uh, you can come and uh, Yeah, we'll talk about, about my pet peeve about taxes and overpaying in taxes. We'll talk about the portfolios and how to profit and protect in market volatility and how to actually retire on, on Monday, June 19th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400, or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Join us after the break. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Did a segment last week, Faisal, um, on marijuana. Yeah. So it's become an interesting topic uh, and a contentious topic in a lot of respects, from the medical aspects to the recreational aspects to the investment aspects of this, right? Man, did we get some emails back for this. It we was did. very interesting. There was a bunch of viewers who had their comments about uh, about that segment, so it was a good thing that we did it because it is bringing different sides of the issues up. Um, one of the key themes of those emails that we got um, was the safety behind product, right? you know, and a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, we got to talk to an expert and a, and a doctor who knows his stuff here. So Dr. George, welcome to the show. Good morning. Okay, my friend, let's start with the, the number one question we got. How safe is marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a completely non-loaded question. I mean, I think I'll probably, I'll probably start off by saying, I think most adults that have occasional use find it pleasurable and really don't experience any substantial problems. And so, your question of safety probably is rooted in the fact that adolescents and young adults are the ones that are central in this discussions because people are worried about. Uh, there are long-term outcomes, and I'll uh, and safety is a tough one. I'll start off by some facts that are true. In the 70s and 80s, the average THC concentration was about three percent, and as we go into legislation and sort of mass product uh, and the rollouts that have happened in south of the border and us, the average concentration is now 15 percent, and you can get resins that are up to 75 percent. So. 
I think the listener needs to understand the concentration has dramatically changed. So all the stuff that they read about on the Internet or they do searches, you have to understand that those long-term studies are really based on lower THC levels. Mm -hmm. And I can't really answer yet the safety of these new higher concentrated potent uh, THC that we're about to see. That's very interesting. That's and the THC, Doctor George. Just to be clear, that's that's the ingredient that gives you that psychoactive or psych, you know, the the I don't know the pleasurable effect that people get out of it. There's also the the what is it the CBD the the um, the cannabidiol the, versus the cannabinol. Yeah, right? yeah. Maybe, maybe you can just help us understand a little bit about the the, the difference there. I mean, that's right. So the THC that everybody knows about the cannabis, uh, the cannabinol, the NOL, mm-hmm. is the one that gives you that psychotropic, pleasurable feeling that when people smoke, uh, that they go for, uh, that also has some of the medicinal purposes. And then there's a lot of interesting stuff emerging over the last, uh, you know, 10 years and into the future of the non-psychoactive, uh, the uh, cannabidiol, which has appreciably no affinity or activity to the, to the, the psychiatric uh, THC. And that's showing a lot of interesting thing in animal models and people are doing a lot of research. So they both can have medicinal purposes, but one has sort of the quote unquote high psychotropic right. effects that give you the, the cognitive um, disassociations that people have versus the non. Yeah, I think it's, that's an important distinction um, uh, to make for sure. Now, we, one of the questions, Faisal, that we had um, was about the addictiveness and the impairing. You know, how, it, you know, how does it impair mm-hmm. you and yeah. how addictive is So, so let, me, is, let me jump in the there, drug. actually, Dave, because th- there, are, there are cases and people using marijuana f- for medical purposes, either for chronic pain or whatever the other concerns may be. Um, one of the issues are you're going to have less pain or you'll be able to help with your, your tumors for cancer and so forth, but you're going to get addicted to this drug. What are your what are your thoughts behind that, Doctor George? I think that's that's going to really give us an idea of where this industry and this this whole concept of medical marijuana is moving towards. Yeah, I mean, so let me answer the second part of it first. There's no question that there's uh, that medical marijuana, if I can use that as a quote, uh, works in certain conditions. I mean, chronic pain medical marijuana has been used for centuries uh, for. For nausea, there's some interesting stuff on pain with multiple sclerosis. And we can have a whole separate talk on the literature behind its use. And by the way, it by no means is slam dunk. So another highlight that I want to say to you guys is the reason why there's good debate is because there is no line in the sand that clearly says, no question, it's superior in this uh, issue versus not. It's I'm talking about the weight of evidence. So to talk mm-hmm. about addiction... I think one of the things that I can be fairly confident in sort of reading and, and talking to my colleagues, that there's no question uh, addiction happens. You cannot um, put a young brain uh, and give them something that affects their neurochemistry uh, that it's not going to be addictive. Nicotine, alcohol, other drugs being other things. Yep. But it's a small percentage. So, you know, the literature kind of quotes you know, 9 to 10% of regular users have, you know, by definition, an addiction, meaning they have withdrawal symptoms uh, from it. And that number tends to go up the more that you use and the earlier that you use. And so if you start as an adolescent, you know, sort of 10 to 12, and 
uh, that addiction number goes up. So it's, there seems to be a signal that the earlier you use it, the more vulnerable and susceptible you're going to be to becoming addicted. And that could be the same thing for prescription drugs. Correct. So, so th- this is the this is same kind of an issue, is it not? Uh, no, absolutely. And, you know, addiction is so complicated because it, it's, it's the individual, it's concomitant psychiatric uh, stressors, relationships you have with your friends and your parents, other medical comorbidities. Like addiction is such a complicated thing. It's not very, it's not simple to understand addiction. So, uh, you know, why does this person uh, smoke crack cocaine and get addicted after one and then one person never gets addicted after they've experimented in their youth. I don't know the answer to that because it's too complicated, and I suspect it is the same reason uh, marijuana uh, has a low level of addiction of 9 to 10% for chronic early users. Now, uh, you've, you've indicated, Dr. George, that the earlier you start, the, the worse the problem. So let's fast forward. So, uh, you know, the medical use of this, just around pain as an example, with all the opioid problems we've heard about, um, if we make the argument that we replace some of that opioid use with medical marijuana, what about the addiction factors for people that are 60 and 70 using this? Does it, is it changed now that you've got a mature brain and, uh, you know, you're uh, perhaps older in life and you haven't used it for your whole life? Yeah, excellent question. I, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, in preparation for this, I started doing a little bit of research where, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, they started to do longitudinal studies where they found people you know, that have been using for 20, 25 years, and they started testing them. Uh, And there's no question uh, that those people had, uh, you know, memory issues, uh, their socioeconomic class was different, uh, their IQ, their job. There's lots of things that were not as good in that, um, in that cohort than people that never used. Again, much lower THCs than people that started young. So to answer your question, I don't know because we don't have the studies right. on much higher THC levels starting in mature non-plastic brains of youth uh, going forward. Uh, I will tell you that I've seen way worse opioid alcohol issues mm-hmm. than I've ever seen in marijuana, but I also tend to see sicker patients in my practice. Right. And, and again, highlighting, I think you know, that's a jaundiced view. There are probably many people that will have good outcomes. Right. Sure. So with all the the conversation, and we'll focus on medical marijuana, why is this not being used as an alternative within the, the, the medical professions across the board? Because it's always, in, in my experience, and in, anecdotally speaking, it would be, you've got a problem, here's a, here's a prescription drug, and we'll see you at your next visit. Um, why has why don't doctors kind of weigh out the options of using an alternative like medical marijuana for whatever the whatever medical marijuana can help with? Well, two things. One, it's been illegal till recently, and I think as a profession, we're going to be very skeptical in using something that might get you into trouble. Two, the science is simply not there, and uh, if you're a good steward and you do best practice, you are going to wait until the evidence or a practice guideline is out before you go ahead and start prescribing your patients. And then three, it actually has been used for a very long time um, in healthcare uh, to various degrees of success, and the literature is emerging. So I think people, uh, 
should be reticent and just slow to pick up something that we hope will work. Because what you don't want to do is, uh, to talk about the last thing we talked about, is to go and start prescribing opioids uh, without a little bit of oversight, which started happening 15, 20 years ago, and then create an issue that no one was trying to create, and that's Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of people addicted on narcotics. And that's a slightly different issue, but it's the same thing as just be careful where you're going to run into because you don't know if you can run out of it. Yeah, I, and I think that, that uh, you know, proceed with caution, uh, in, certainly in your industry, in the medical industry, um, is, uh, is wise. We haven't been able to get to all the questions that we had, Faisal, from, uh, you know, from last week's show. I'm sure we'll get more this week, and it's probably an ongoing conversation that we're going to have. Correct. Uh, Dr. George, I want to thank you again for joining us. If you, got, if you have any questions for Dr. George, because we had lots, uh, uh, certainly on this one, send them to us at More Than Money uh, Radio. Go to the yeah. website, send them to us. And on we'll, this uh, topic or any other topic. That's right. right. We'll ask Dr. George. Thanks for joining us, Dr. George. All right. Have a great weekend, guys. All right. Before we sign off here, uh, we've got an upcoming seminar um, that we're going to talk about healthcare, not necessarily you know, cannabis use to support it, but we're going to talk about healthcare as an important asset class as well. Yeah, health is very important. Is what's going to happen as you age? Do you what kind of income do you need? Um, what's the government going to support with? And that all comes into the problem of will I run out of money? Will I have enough income to support my lifestyle throughout my retirement? We're going to cover all these types of topics and and also the issue on how do you profit and protect in, in volatile markets. That's going to be on Monday, June nineteenth, seven p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethemoneyradio.com. Up next, don't miss our conversation about art. Whether you collect it or invest in it, you can listen to, uh, listen to what we have to say from an expert in Canada. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Uh, Faisal, we often talk about diversification, uh, mm-hmm. different asset classes and so on and so forth. And it's been a while since we've actually talked about art um, and not just from the sort of the passion of, uh, of art collectors uh, collecting it for the sheer beauty of it or the elegance, but also as an investment, right? Uh, a lot of people have art when they invest in it. They also have an eye to the investment, to the value of that art. And we've done shows in the past when you look at you know some of those auctions and how the pricing is going for certain pieces of art. Uh, it's kind of like a, f- a forward-looking indicator of the economy. Sotheby's yeah. has been on the show in the past talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. So very interesting when you, when you look at how art kind of dictates which way the economy is moving. And, but you know, the, 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 the question always comes out is if I have this, uh, these pieces of, 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 of artwork, how, how do I pass that on and who do I give it to? And it gets even more confusing when you start talking about estate planning as well. Yeah, it really does. But anyways, let's, um, let's start with maybe just the passion of art first. We've got Sharon London. Liss is the president of the Art Dealers Association of Canada joining us today. Sharon, thanks for taking some time with us. Good morning. Thanks for your call. Happy to join you. So let's just talk a little bit about um, about art, if you're interested in art. Um, what do people look for, generally speaking? And I understand that it's very personal, but what do you look for in creating a collection of art? Well, first and foremost, I believe it should be um, an investment in pleasure. 
So that would mean you buy something that you have a visceral reaction to. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, at a certain level, and for everybody, that level is quite different. I think that you have to do some due diligence. You have to um, examine the artist's record in the market. You have to know a bit more about his career to know whether uh, it's the right period or the wrong period to be adding to your collection if, in fact, you're looking for uh, market growth. Yeah, I, I think, again, it's it's very personal. Uh, do most people, when they buy art, um, again, strip that personal bit out? Are they, are they thinking about it in terms of its investment value or its value to the family from a legacy perspective, or is that really a secondary concern? Oh, boy. Well, um, you know, everybody hopes that the value will increase. Right. Uh, the idea is actually to get in a ground level and find somebody before they've been discovered. You know, we can talk about Maude Lewis, who's, uh, who's certainly newsworthy um, this month, not just with the wonderful movie about her life, but with the recent auction sales. And those paintings sold for $5. Right. So somebody who had the, um, the presence of mind to buy one at $5, which certainly would have been going out on a limb way back in the 60s, you know, I mean, one sold for $45,000 last week, one sold for $32,000 yesterday. Well, that's not a bad return on investment, is so it? So it's not a bad return. But when people come in and say to me, show me something that's going to go up in value. Right. That sounds I like think. my day at the office. <laughs> and I buy I stocks say, for a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say, give me a second and I'll take out my crystal ball. Yeah. You know, because really nobody can make that prediction. You might have an idea that somebody will go places, but so much of it depends on the vagaries of the market, the economy, world situation, and really the on the ongoing work that the artist is doing. Mm-hmm. I, so I there's found it no in- such thing, I don't think, as a sure a sure found investment. No, I think that's probably true. I know Deloitte and Touche puts out a, um, uh, a global art and finance report. I think they did one in 2016. And I was interested in, in looking at sort of high net worth uh, collectors in their report. It said about 51% of the collectors consider the diversification benefits of buying art. And that was actually up from their previous report. So it would appear that at least high net worth investors, not just in uh, you know buying art for just the pure enjoyment of it, but also with a consideration that, that there's going to be some future value to it. But let's, let's sort of move forward because art's very personal and not everybody knows the value of art. Yeah. You have any, you know, you must have some stories or you've heard of some stories of people perhaps receiving art as, a, as a, uh, an estate gift and not really re- realizing what they've got and perhaps disposing of it like this last story at a price that maybe isn't reflective of, of truly what that art's worth. That is very true, and this happens time and time again where somebody's given a wedding gift or left something in a state and they have no knowledge and no interest and no particular affection for the piece, and oftentimes it's thrown out in a garage sale or left behind in the house when they move, and it happens all the time. So, so let's, let's talk about that because there's probably a lot more people in that, uh, in that category. If you do receive uh, an estate gift and part of it is is paintings or sculptures or art of some kind, what do you suggest people do to make sure that they're not making that mistake? (laughs) Well, consult the experts, I always say. Um, You know, before you make any decision, certainly with estate planning with your art or once you've received a gift, I think that you have to make some inquiries as to current value. You may not like it, but there may be a very substantial market for the work. 
Where so where do people go to do that? Do you just go to a local art dealer, or do you, do you contact the association, or how how would somebody find out? Well, certainly going to um, well-established galleries would be a good start. Uh, the Professional Art Dealers Association of Canada doesn't do um, individual appraisals. Really, we work with the institutions across the country. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly if somebody were to contact our office, they would be very happy to direct that person to the appropriate expert or appraiser to give them some assistance. All right, and I, I think that's important, Sharon. You, you said it best, right? What's art to one person may not be art to another, so don't just assume, particularly in a, as a gift or an estate, uh, that, that there, is, uh, there is no value there. I want to thank you for taking some time with us today. It's been a pleasure. We've by, uh, been joined by Sharon London. She's the president of the Art Dealers Association of Canada. And, you know, Faisal, we talk about estate planning a lot um, as part of the, the transition of wealth to the next generation. And we often talk about the planning and the conversation, right? This is interesting because art's a good example where, you know, your parents may be much more sophisticated than you are in, in this particular area in art. And so they may understand the value, but if it hasn't been communicated or properly documented, right, you can actually create a, a problem. A lot of that gift may be given to somebody else because your kids dispose of it not knowing what they've got. That's so true. And, and, and you could be foregone wealth, but more importantly, the, the understanding of all the assets. And I think when, when you do have artwork, um, regardless of value, regardless of what you paid for it, yeah. um, you need to have some sort of inventory or, um, or listing of all the artwork that you have, all the collectible items that you have. It could go into coins and so on and so forth. Uh, that you should you should have that inventory for your for your um, executor to to look at all that stuff and maybe just take another look uh, and say is are these things worth anything because uh, if they're worth any uh, large amount that changes how the estate should look at so what you may think is a five dollar piece of art and you're just gonna you know donate it or toss it out or give it to the, you know somebody that you, you it may not be in the actual wishes of the of the estate. So having that conversation with the executor, more importantly, having an inventory list and maybe even getting it appraised. Cause what you hate yep. also is that if, what if something goes wrong with that piece of art, like a fire or a flood, mm -hmm. and that was worth way more than what you expected. Now your insurance company can protect it as well too. So understanding what you own, you may buy it for something cheap or out of a, you know, even at a, at a garage sale or something like that. But and even, even from a donation perspective, right? So so um, from a tax perspective, a donation of art um, often qualifies as cultural property, and it can receive pretty favorable treatment from, from a donation perspective. So it could be part of the legacy in terms of setting up a, a, um, a foundation or something along those Correct. lines, right? Yeah. So lots of different ways to, uh, to look at art, um, not just the, well, we hope when you buy it, you enjoy the art, right? Yeah. But there's also a value, uh, and it can be a substantial value to that. We're going to talk a little bit about legacy and transitioning um, uh, assets of all kinds on taxation at our upcoming seminar. Yeah, taxation is one of the biggest concerns amongst Canadians There are uh, when they transition to retirement. There are uh, other uh, issues that they have, like running out of money. Yeah, That's a big concern for people. So if you are a investor, if you are transitioning to retirement, and if you are concerned about the kind of income that you need, we have strategies in place, and we're going to talk about that on Monday. This is now a Monday, June 19th uh, seminar at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. That's at 7 p.m. Uh, please give us a call to reserve your seats, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. 
Okay, well, stay tuned after the break to hear about some of Canada's most beautiful and natural hotels to put on your travel list. You're listening to News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. You're here with Dave and Faisal. Um, we talk about travel. You know, we don't sometimes talk a lot about traveling within our own country. Yeah. Well, odd? it was interesting because when you went to France, yeah. you rented with your family, an yeah. extended family, a castle. Yeah. And you had a nice natural view, and it was, it was beautiful. You were raving about it. You had yeah. a great time. It I was, was in ha- the middle of nowhere. In the Loire Valley, and it, you're right. It was all it was all nature. It wasn't and, about and no the one. Big city. Well, no one was more happier than me that you were gone. Yeah. But more importantly, what we haven't talked about is some of the destinations in, and more importantly, the hotels in Canada mm-hmm. that have got more of a nature type of approach too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought this was interesting. We read an article on this. Mary Lisa Racco, uh, national online journalist, here to help us understand a bit uh, about that. Mary Lisa, thank you for joining us. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. So let's let's stop with uh, start with this. Maybe give us a uh, um, your your list of the most beautiful nature hotels in Canada. Well, I've compiled ten of them, so okay. it's a somewhat extensive list. But I think um, what a lot of people sort of fail to realize is that um, you know we don't only have sort of two options in Canada, which is either camping or going to a glamorous sort of cosmopolitan yeah. hotel. There are so many places that we can go to that are rooted in nature that are beautiful and also quite luxurious. Um, so, you know, we've got things like the Ice Hotel in yeah. Quebec, which, yeah. of course, is like such a huge destination for so many people. Um, but also a lot of people don't know about Fogo Island, um, you know, in uh, in Newfoundland which is considered um, one of the four corners of the earth by the Flat Earth Society. And it's this incredible, sort of very contemporary, beautiful hotel that um, relies on a lot of sort of sustainable practices and has incredible decor. And then there's so much to do in the environs. Um, And then, you know, glamping in, you know, sort of like very upscale tents in the Ottawa Valley. Or, um, you know, even going up to... Um, you know, the the Yukon uh, and to see the Aurora Borealis. I mean, these are just things that are so incredible and once-in-a-lifetime opportunities that we don't realize are actually at our fingertips here. So, so why is it that we don't hear about these ones? You know, I see ads and I see a lot of marketing done by foreign countries to come there, look at all what we have to offer, and I'm just thinking about all those commercials that I see. But I don't see any of this stuff in advertised in, in at least here in, in Calgary. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, as Canadians, we're sort of humble, naturally. And, um, and I think a lot of it is just, it's word of mouth. And, you know, maybe just giving people incentive to do some research on your own country and, and find these places. Um, but I can tell you that they are very popular destinations and they are frequented by people. I mean, um, you know, this inn on the lake in Whitehorse uh, got sort of a stamp of approval from Martha Stewart. So people do know. Yeah, there you go. And you know, listen, you don't have to travel very far to get to some of these. I mean, there's a number of them on, on Vancouver Island, which, uh, you know, you can sleep in a tree fort. I know that's big on your list. Yeah, but it's sure. not the tree fort in your backyard. Like this oh, is, no. Yeah, this, this is a good one. <laughs> mine, mine had five stars by the average five-year-old. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, so how, did you pick, how did you pick these hotels? Like what, was, what was it in particular that you, made you choose them? 
well, the criteria that i worked from was that it had to be something that was um sort of built into nature. so whether it is, you know, like the ice hotel, which is made from ice and snow, or something that is situated in um a national park or a forest, that was sort of what i went with. and then i wanted to find things that um were actual accommodations. I mean, these, you know, glamping, you know, you're sleeping in a tent. It's not necessarily a hotel per se, but um I wanted something that where a person could go and have everything that they needed given to them without having to take anything with them. So you don't have to pack any camping gear and you don't have to take, you know, a tent or a cooler or what have you. These are all lo- locations where they give you everything that you need. Hmm. Uh- yeah, I, it, this is interesting. I mean, I haven't been... I'm going to go back to Vancouver Island for a sec because I spent a lot of time on Vancouver Island. There's some really neat stuff. Haven't been to any of those places. Oh, maybe that's a good question. Um, and Mary Lisa, I don't know if, if you've actually traveled any. Do you have any favorite stories from, from any of these particular destinations? I don't know if you've been to them or not. Um, unfortunately, I have not been to any of these destinations myself, but I can tell you that they're on my bucket list now. <laughs> Absolutely. They look fantastic. Uh, any tips for those uh, people that are you know thinking about maybe they want... They want to switch it up a little bit, right? We've had the spa experience now. Now we want to have the nature experience. Um, What do you consider? Well, I think that, you know, don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. You can have the spa and the nature experience all in one, which is what's great about so many of these these properties is that they do offer things. I mean, you know, the Cleocot Wilderness Resort in Tofino, for example, it bills itself as as an eco-safari-inspired resort. And so if anyone's been on safari in Africa, which I have on several occasions, um, you are in the wilderness, you are out in the bush, but you are given all of these sort of luxury treatments to choose from that, you know, are offered at any spa in any city. So I think it's good to know that, you know, you don't have to have one or the other. You can have them both. And in your research, did you come across sort of a price range that, that people could expect? Is is this put us into a different category because it's unique or is it, you know, is it kind of the what we could expect um, mainstream? Um, it would really depend on where you would go. I mean, something like, um, you know, the Fogo Island Inn would be quite pricey uh, versus, for example, you know, going to, you know, the yurt in uh, the Floribora Forest Lodging in Emma Lake, Saskatchewan, right, for example, would be would be more affordable. Do you have a, do you have a price range between the two, like from, from the, the, the cheaper one to the most expensive one, just to give our listeners a, an idea of what... what inexpensive and expensive means unfortunately i didn't research specific pricing on these properties okay Okay. but there would be there would be a range and again whatever you wanted to attach to it the spa experience and everything else would be interesting mary lisa i want to thank you for your time thank you so much we've been joined by mary lisa racco who's a national online journalist and we're talking a little bit about some unique hotels and uh, nature experience but you know what retirement itself Bit of an experience. Lots of things you can experience in retirement, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. You know, when people look at retiring, they, they try to figure out what they're, what they're going to do. Yeah. Some people have it all mapped out well before they, they actually retire. Other people are trying to figure out as they go along. And I'd say a lot of our clients are like that, Dave. When they're going through their, their retirement, they want to kind of figure out, where can I travel? What can I do? And, and, and I, just to give you an example, I, I had a client of ours come in uh, this week and said, you know, I, wanna, I want my retirement to be, I want to live in different cities around the world for a couple of months at a time. So New York, 
Paris, London, you know, and that was very interesting in, in, in his approach. But one thing, the concern that he had was income. Will I have enough income to have that type of lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Not to just pay my bills, right. but that type of lifestyle. And that's where the, the planning and more importantly, the strategy of asset dedication comes into play. Now, we're going to talk about that asset dedication strategy on Monday, June 19th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now, you need to reserve your seats. So please give us a call at 966-8400, 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. And yes, he did say Monday. Normally it's Tuesday. For eight years, it's been a Tuesday. We're going to try a Monday. That's because I'm traveling. You guys are nice <laughs> to change the date for me. It's all my fault for those who are used to going down on a Tuesday. My bad. I'm, I apologize in advance. <laughs> we have had requests, in fairness, for dates other than Tuesday. So there you go. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there. And listen, before we sign off on this show, I want to just give you a quick reminder that you can access any of today's segments or even our past segments that we've done on the show at morethanmoneyradio.com or get them delivered directly to you by searching for more than money, um, in brackets, CHQR, on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on News Talk 770. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.